Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then moved my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the stories straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes. In a Mississippi Minute. That's right. Today's guest on In a Mississippi Minute is a music industry veteran whose name had been synonymous with Warner Brothers Records for nearly 30 years, where he served in various publicity-related positions, culminating with Senior Vice President of Worldwide Corporate Communications. So let me explain this man and his job description's importance. You ain't winning a Grammy or any other award unless this man does his job to a T. It's that important. He's still to this day that important. Upon departing Warner Brothers back in 01, he started his own PR consulting business, MFH, which projects included Etta James, ZZ Top, ABKCO Music and Records, The Rolling Stones, our very own Sam Cooke, DreamWork Records, and many, many others. He co-founded Memphis International Records, he loves the Delta and co-authored the book of heart and soul, a celebration of black music style from 1930 to 1975, which was a nominee for the prestigious Ralph J. Gleason Award as best music book. And yes, I've been fortunate enough to work with him on my most recent record and film project. Please say hey, hey, hey to a legend in our business and a really good man, founder of Merlis for Hire, Bob Merlis. Hey, Bob. How's it going, Steve? I'm good. Are you uh, sunny California? I'm in the sunniest part of California. I'm in Palm Springs. Hmm. So that's that's not fair. We've got, we've got rain as usual here down in the <laughs> Delta. Our farmers are are fighting, uh, but they'll but they'll they'll survive and they'll overcome and they'll win like they always do. Uh, they're that resilient. Okay. So you, you do you spend most of your time now in Palm Springs? No, I don't. I'm I'm here. I cheated on the weekend because I have. Uh, a friend coming into town, and he's going to perform tonight, and I want to be there for his uh, his little set. I love his, it. So, so music still to this day has yes, it ever gotten every, old to you? Everything I do is work related, even when it's fun. Yeah, me too. I get it. I get it. Even even when things go disarray, music always seems to fix it. And when music's the problem, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, a, it's always seemed to be the fix. All right, so Bob, take me back a little bit. Take me back to growing up. You have a, a, an affection for where I grew up. Well, when I was a little kid, I got stung by the rock and roll bee and uh, listened to radio obsessively and was very focused on uh, what I what I got to know as rhythm and blues, we just called it rock and roll. 
And, uh, you know, apart from Elvis and so on, uh, you mentioned Sam Cooke just now, and, of course, he was an eternal favorite. You know, back in those days, I would buy 45s with my allowance money. Every two weeks, I could afford one record. And uh, that's that's how I dutifully spent the money. I remember this is a good this is a good one. I went to the it was, you bought you bought records in a an appliance store where you could buy a refrigerator or a television set in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York. Walked there. I, I can't imagine a kid of uh, seven years old walking across you know four lanes of traffic and so on, but I did it. I wanted to buy Jailhouse Rock. It, it was a you know I go back that far. It was a new record then. And uh, they had lists of records, you know, what the, the hit parade, so to speak. I said, I want number three. I'm just making that up. It's Jailhouse Rock. Back with Don't Be Cruel. You can't, you can't lose two winners. <laughs> and the guy said, we don't have it. So pay for it, me. Pay for it now. And come back in a week and I'll have it. And I, and I gave him my 75 cents, whatever it was. And he gave me a piece of paper that said, you know, Jailhouse Rock. And I thought, wait a minute! I just spent seventy-five cents on a piece of paper. I didn't. I, I didn't understand the. Uh, I, I paid it forward, so to speak. But I came back a week later, and there it was, to my eternal delight. And I'm still listening to it. Listening to it now. I've, I've saved pretty much all the forty-fives I bought as a kid. The evolution of how we listen to music has, you know, come and gone and back again. So we're back to vinyl, mm-hmm. and. Uh, now you go to Barnes and Noble, and I see vinyl. I see more vinyl than I do CDs for sure, uh, and and they're really starting to, it's starting to happen again. We made vinyl on Steve Azar and the Kingsman record, which you know about, and it was just, it's just, it was so substantial to open up something like that. First of all, the artwork was bigger. Uh, the you know the presentation was more valuable and more informative, and it was an event. So as you've seen this whole thing go. And then go to eight tracks and cassettes and then CDs and now we're back to vinyl. Uh, you know what's it what's it like seeing it come full circle? Well, I'm I'm happy that uh, vinyl is uh, ascendant to some extent, but it's never going to be what it was uh, because you're right. The, the whole tactile experience you you take it out of the sleeve, you look at both sides, you figure out what side you want to listen to first, you read the liner notes, you put the needle in the groove. It's interactive. Yeah. It's not a passive circumstance. I mean, streaming is as passive as you can get. You just <laughs> turn on a faucet and music comes out of it. I understand you have some input into what's going to come out of that faucet. But um, it's in, in the vinyl world, it's really an act of will. It's, um, you're, you are a participant in it, whether you, whether you play an instrument or sing along or not. You, you have something to do with the process. Yeah. And it's funny that uh, when CDs became the thing, I got rid of a lot of vinyl albums, and um, and now I'm buying them back. Yeah, I'm, I'm I go to I, I typically buy them at thrift stores and flea markets, you know, and if they're uh, they're under five dollars, and I, I'll just I'll buy it. Yeah, <laughs> the problem is I don't know what I have and what I don't have. <laughs> I have bought I bought the best of Roger Miller twice and uh, Johnny Mathis's greatest hits twice. Now I realize I'm I'm creating a a, a backup plan here. Maybe I'll. I'll start a little record store and sell my extra. I love it. I love it. I love it. We're talking to Bob Merlis. All things publicity in the rock and roll world and blues and R&B. And it's mm-hmm. just, uh, it was such a blessing to get to work with you on our first, uh, on our last project. All right. So, Bob, you grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, what'd your folks do? My dad was a physician and my mother was a sculptor. 
I'd say they were a little more cosmopolitan than the typical people in our neighborhood. And so as a result, we'd go into Manhattan, which is like a different city for people in the depths of Brooklyn in those days. I remember my contemporaries would used to say, I'm going to New York. And I'm thinking, you're in New York. Brooklyn is a borough of the city of New York. But they had a little more provincial point of view, I suppose, than my mom and dad. And uh, I think it was helpful because my father had uh, MD plates. He could park virtually anywhere. So that was helpful. And uh, they'd go into, uh, into New York, the city, Manhattan, really and uh, go to plays and things like that. And as a result, when I was a kid, I I imagine I was 10 or 11 years old. I saw West Side Story first run on Broadway. And uh, it's stayed with me ever since. I mean, it's one of the greatest pieces of theater ever. And I I just love it. Um, And and that's, that's a vinyl record I play on, uh, on quite regularly. Bob, your mom is a sculptor. Um, uh, Was she uh, well known per Um, se? I mean, I've seen newspaper articles about her and so on. Her work is not in any major museum as as we speak. But uh, when people come to our house and my two brothers' houses and see it, they always ask about it because it it does stand out. It has a very Central American pre-Columbian look to it. And she did it. She didn't do it. uh, I mean, she could uh, do the typical kind of stuff with clay and have it bronze, but she used a hammer and chisel and uh, hack things out of stone and hardwood. Wow. Wow. Now, now, so from Leland, Mississippi, was a guy named Leon Curry. And I don't know if maybe your mom ran across him. He spent most of his days in, in New York, as well as down here was Lee McCarty, who recently passed. And he had McCarty is this incredible pottery that he made out of Mississippi mud that his, uh-huh. his friends were Benny Goodman. And he, so he spent a lot of time back and forth in New York, and they loved his work. He, it became uh-huh. legendary, and we have all these pieces as well. So, uh, and, and buying them up as fast as we can now because since he's passed, I mean, it's just the, his son's still doing it and running it, but it, it, it's, you know, it was missing those, you know, that magical, those magical hands of Lee, and, uh, but, but still wonderful. But, you know, still, I got to know him, and he's just a sweet, wonderful man and just so articulate and so compassionate and passionate about the arts of all kinds. So I'm wondering if they, who knows, they may have... All- it's possible. My mother's long gone. And, but, I, you know, I, I do want to mention something about my family's relationship to Mississippi, because that's where my father was stationed during oh. part of the war, uh, World War II. Uh, he, was, he was stationed both in Mississippi... In Alabama, I know the I know the Alabama post was Fort Dothan, I think, but I I, I cannot off the top of my head. Was it Air Force or Army? Army, regular Army. Okay, so it wouldn't have been Keesler, uh, probably around Columbus or somewhere like that. I, I don't know. My my eldest brother was a little boy then, and, and he was there, but that's all I can tell you. Wow, I love it. I love we're talking to Bob Merlis here in a Mississippi minute. We're figuring it all out. That's how we roll. <laughs> and, Yeah. 
Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. We're live at the Keep Mississippi Beautiful Studios. I'm Steve Azar. I'm with Bob Merlis. If you wanted to have a hit record or be seen on TV or win an award, my goodness, I'm telling you, still to this day, the job description of what he does is that impactful, that important, and you got to have it. And I mean that. Uh, Bob, so you go to college? Yeah. You go to college? Columbia? Where'd you go? Yeah, I went to Columbia University in the city of New York, uh, but um, I, I was in the dorm there, and uh, I... Um, what can I tell you? When when I was there, aside from being a an American history major, I also majored in rock and roll. Insofar as I programmed the jukebox in the student union, which was great. I put it had the most obscure records in it, and when they didn't get enough plays, they'd give me the records. So part of my record collection is based on that. And, Smart uh, man. I, Smart. <laughs> It wasn't that. It was a sort of, uh, it just fell to me, let's put it that way. And I also was involved with booking uh, live uh, attractions uh, for the students. So we booked, let me go back, uh, Martha and the Vandellas, the Birds, um, Simon and Garfunkel. Um, you know, it was in, it was in that era. Uh, it was interesting because we I booked the Birds and I expected four or five guys and I got I got McGuinn and Hillman, but I also got a guy on the piano. I had no idea who he was, and it turned out he was Graham Parsons, oh, man. who um, pretty much invented, um, um, you know, country rock. Yeah, incredible. I loved him. I mean, it's. Uh, are you kidding me? We are the eye in the sky, looking at you. <laughs> I can... So um, that that gave me some intersection with, uh, you know, the professional part of the music business, not the record business, but. You know the booking, booking people, and so on. We weren't under any constraint to make money. The hope was we would break even. We were subsidized, so I was probably a terrible negotiator. When the guy says it's five thousand dollars, I said, "Okay, here's the money." You know, I didn't realize <laughs> you could negotiate. Uh, um, but uh, you know, we had some great concerts, and um, um, you know, as a result, I I, I started to read. Um, uh, billboard and cash box they'd come to the student union and i'd page through them and uh i got i got some uh, familiarity with the business i already knew every record label i knew who was on what label uh but i didn't know who the executives were and things like that i mean i'm right. just a you know a college undergraduate but like you, but but you're talking about being in in the land at the time of John Hammond and Ahmed Erdogan and 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 Wexler and all those guys, which were yeah, so pivotal. Uh, and uh, all all three of those guys I got to meet. I had I remember this is a fantastic story. I I went uh, out to lunch with John Hammond, who was the man who signed Bessie Smith to um, Columbia Records. He's uh, no, I'm sorry. He signed Billy Holiday. Uh, he, uh, he signed Count Basie. He signed Bob Dylan. Right. He signed Aretha Franklin. Bruce Springsteen. Uh, he was a gr- great A and R man. And yeah. uh, I went out to lunch with him, and he said, "I said what?" And I, it was the topic of the lunch was this Bessie Smith. I think it was ten LP set. And I was writing an article for a music trade magazine called Record World. Ah. And I said, "Well, what el- what else are you doing?" He says, "I've just signed." I'll never forget his words a marvelous Catholic boy from New Jersey named Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and um, 
And, and you know, in hindsight, I understand why he said Catholic boy, because with the last name that ends in esteem, you'd think he was Jewish. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but no matter what, he'd already signed a marvelous Jewish boy from Minnesota, Bob Dylan. Yeah, um, wow. Anyway, so that was before Springsteen made a record or anything. I just I knew that this was somebody that John Hammond was enthusiastic about was was forthcoming. And speaking of Jerry Wexler, who was Ahmed Erdogan's partner in Atlantic Records and then later worked at Warner Brothers Records, I went to a session where he was producing Etta James, her Deep in the Night album, where I got to really to be very friendly with Etta uh, until the time of her departure. And um, he said, here's how to produce a record. Get a band leader, preferably a drummer. <laughs> That's like, okay, yeah. now I know how to produce a record. Yeah, well, come on. If the drummer's not in time, things aren't working out. I mean, you got to build I, it from I, the I ground know. up. What's going to hold it together, right? Nothing, nothing. <laughs> drummer and bass player, man, they got to be on time. The rest will fill in. But, yeah, you're right. It's it's so important. And, and Wexler, who was, you know, a real notable in the, in the industry, had his roots were at a trade magazine. He worked for Billboard years ago, and in, way before that. Wow. And he had invented the term rhythm and blues. Come the, on. The black music chart in that era was called the race music chart. Right. And uh, Back and in the Muddy Water of, days, right? It was called race music, right? It was, race music. Yeah. And, and it was kind of odious. It's sort of, of exclusionary. Right. And he, he came up with rhythm and blues, and it was like, wow, that works. It really says something, you know? Uh, Wow, um, and and so that's the fundament for rock and roll, really, rhythm and blues. Um, and there was another. Oh, you mentioned Erdogan. I met I met him uh, a few times, but uh, I never worked with him. Um, I read I read the bio on him. It's called the Last Sultan, which is interesting because he he was the son of a Turkish diplomat, the, mm-hmm. the Turkish ambassador to the United States, and he became very American. And was right. in love, uh, living in Washington D.C. in the uh, Turkish embassy, he would go to um, R&B shows all over Washington and Baltimore, and became really well versed with uh, that idiom. And uh, that was the foundation of Atlantic Records. Wow. Well, I spent time. He he used to bring me in a couple occasions. I say used to. So a couple occasions he brought me in, and I was this young teenager, and, and oh, I was I was an older teenager, and and we were making noise down here, making some bad music, but man, we had fun. We were a lot of fun, and uh, I was trying to figure it all out. And and uh, he he, I've I think I've said this on my show before, but I got to tell you because it was it was my moment of clarity. And he plays me walking in Memphis by Mark Cohn on a work tape where Mark was talking like so it was a cassette, of course, but it mm-hmm. wasn't like a record. It was, uh, hey, here's this, you know, uh, he goes, OK, he plays me that and he goes, OK, I'm going to sign you or him. Who am I signing? Exactly that. And oh I and I went, well, I don't have that. I knew it. I mean, it was a wake up call for me. And he goes, well, I don't yeah. know what you are. You've been influenced by all these styles and you're still trying to find yourself. My door is always open. But I thought for sure he was going to sign me because it put me on task to write uh, uh, songs that didn't have choruses that rhymed. And so, of course, I raced home uh, the time before, and we got in the garage, and I wrote these songs, and I started testing them live, and then I rec- we recorded it live in the garage because that was all the technology we could afford. And we sent it, and then we sent it to them, and they called us to come up. Well, I'll never forget it, Bob. You'll love it. That it was a September, and we had 29 shows booked. Now, listen, it is what it is. The fraternity houses, they're, they're I mean, 
29 shows. Some of them were two a day. It's like a daytime and a nighttime. And Fantastic. We go clubs. And so he said they had asked us, and a guy named Osmini Raup was the head of A&R that was sort of the guy that was communicating with me through Ahmet. And I remember him going, send me your tour schedule for September. And I wasn't paying attention. We were trying to pay for gear, my brother and I. And we had, he had, he, my brother loved to spend money and buy gear and then buy trucks to let the gear fit in. And it was all PV stuff, you know, PV loaded up. PV. Yeah, Meridian, all Mississippi, Mississippi. All Mississippi. And so, anyway, uh, staying true to form, you know, in my roots. And they went, what? Heck, I don't know if they ever showed up or not. Then we got the call and. Long story short, I, I was in the room with him, and he was just so patient and just, and I was scared to death, you know? And he closed his eyes, he played that record, and I said, well, I'm screwed. <laughs> and, dep- you know, it depressed me, because I was all in, man. I wanted, it, I wanted it back then. But anyway, we're with Bob Merlis. Bob, you get to play DJ. You get to go back to your college days, and you get mm-hmm. to tell me, would you like to hear a little... Well, Mississippi's the birthplace of American music. I know you know this. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna preach that to you. You know it better than most. Uh, Bobby Gentry or R.L. Burnside? That's your choice. Well, right now I'm, I'm going to go with Bobby Gentry, and I'll tell you why. I just, I just bought a uh, an album that I used to have, and of course I got rid of, and then I rebought it at a at a thrift sale, where she says. Uh, M I S S W E I. You know the. Yeah. You have a Bobby Gentry up. You don't want streaming Bobby Gentry. You want to look at that album cover. Yeah. You want to hear the crackling. You want to hear it all when that needle <laughs> drops. We're with Bob Merlis, the great Bob Merlis. I'm Steve Azar from the Keep Mississippi beautiful studio. You're in a Mississippi minute, Bobby Gentry. I was born in Chickasaw County. When I was six, we moved to another region in Mississippi called the Delta. And we lived between two rivers. One was the Yazoo, and the other was the Tallahatchie. It was the 3rd of June, another sleepy, dusty, delta day. I was out chopping cotton, and my brother was baling hay. And at dinner time we stopped and walked back to the house to eat And mama hollered at the back door, y'all remember to wipe your feet And then she said, I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge Today Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge and Papa said to Mama as he passed around the Black Eyed Peas Oh, Billy Joe never had liquor since Pass the biscuits, please There's five more acres in the lower forty I got In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Always good to keep Mississippi beautiful. That's what studio we are dwelling in right now. I'm Steve Azar, you're in a Mississippi Minute. I'm back with Bob Merlis, legendary icon in the music business, has worked with everybody. Uh, we got to talk Sam Cooke. 
Uh, I'm actually, to be honest with you, I'm interviewing Carla Cook uh, on tomorrow's show. So it's oh, sort great. of which which is I didn't I didn't plan on that, uh, and it just worked out. So I'm hoping we'll probably go back to back with uh, you know Sam died at 33 I think tragically, and yeah. uh, were you working with him right then when that with an album? No, 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 no. And he died in 1964. I was uh, oh you were a baby still in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I remember when he died. It was I, I just couldn't imagine that. A guy who's so vital and and so uh, part of a contemporary scene was just removed from our world. It was. I, I remember it was not typical for a guy like me to buy Ebony magazine, but I did because I wanted to see. They had massive coverage of his funeral, where they had services in both Chicago and Los Angeles. Um, you know, he was very much born in Clarksdale, right? But but um, very much associated with. Chicago soul, the, the rise of Chicago soul, and then made his home in Los Angeles, which is where he did the bulk of his important recordings, uh, both uh, secular and uh, gospel recordings. So was he on with, Warner? Um, no, he never was on Warner Brothers. He was on RCA Records. I got involved with his catalog because uh, the music publishing for virtually all the songs he wrote is controlled by Abco Music. He was managed by Alan Klein. He's the he's the A of Abco, and uh, who also went on to be the Stones manager and Bobby Womack's manager, mm. and for a short time the Beatles manager. Wow. So there's a, it. These things all cross over. You know, it's not by uh, coincidence that um, the Stones covered um, "Good Times" by Sam Cooke. Oh, okay. And, um, it, okay. There's 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 a reason for that. It gets uh, incestuous I mean, were, a little the, bit. I hate to use the that. Songs word. were attuned to Sam Cooke, obviously, but right. uh, it, it was it was coming from the same sort of house. Right. Uh, right. Right. Anyway, and you mentioned Etta James earlier on, and Etta told me she 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 knew when Sam Cooke died when she was quite young, living in uh, the inner city in L.A. She used to listen to police scanners, and she heard that there was a there was a a killing and she figured out where it was and she drove by that motel where sam cook was murdered wow. um and where the police tape was it made a huge impact on her as well oh man man i can only imagine unbelievable yeah. that's well that's just a, a piece of history you'd rather not be a part of but if you are i mean the story's not, not that yeah and, right. and when i was young i actually thought i'm going to write um, I'm going to write a play called The Death of Sam Cooke. I, I didn't know what I had in mind, but I thought that was the, the, that title was so evocative. I mean, it was like, that was the end of something really important. Um, and I, I think he was really, the, it's overused now, but a transcendent artist. And then, well, literally from gospel to secular music, but he made inspirational music, whether he mentioned uh, the deity in it or not, everything was inspirational. Well, he came from it's church. Just, you know, which is a lost sure, art now. I mean, it's, it's getting to be a lost a art. He was a huge gospel star in, in his youth. Right. And in fact, his first record, a secular record, he, he recorded under the name Dale Cook because he didn't want the gospel world to think he'd sold them out. But it was everybody, that under, they heard the voice and they realized, of course that's Sam Cook. You can't, changing his name wouldn't do it. <laughs> I love it. I love talking to Bob Merlis. Merlis for Hire. If you want something to happen with your music, then that's who you call and hunt down and you haunt him until he says yes. 
that's what you did <laughs> i did i did hey so hats you wear hats right am i crazy or are you a hat guy uh well in palm springs you gotta wear a hat you're gonna burn your face if you don't wear a hat okay so that's not uh, something... i mean i do i'm not obsessive it's not a trademark okay if i okay. had a, a a style trademark it would be a bow tie Okay. Oh, that. Wait a minute. Wait. Time out. That's right. The bow tie. So this is yeah. where this is where the you know this is where I always get a little bit of my information confused. It's the bow tie. With That's you. right. And always about when? How long did that? When did that start? Uh, it started about forty years ago, I guess. I I I wore you know long ties, and I just experimented with a bow tie, and I realized I knew how to tie it. It's like oh. tying your shoelace backwards. Yeah. So it was sort of a challenge and but i you know an easy challenge and uh so then i started to wear a tie to work when i worked at warner brothers and that uh, the, the the environment at warner brothers was uh was business casual would be like a formal wear there <laughs> people wore flip-flops and t-shirts and you know it's california right yeah but i thought i'm gonna wear a tie and uh it, it. it became like a thing I mean, um, it was fun for me. I, I like style. And when I when I go to work these days, I don't typically wear a tie. But if I have an interview to do, or if I'm going to meet a client, I do. And I, I say, well, I want to. I want my client to see what he's paying for. In other words, they, yeah. they hired Bob Merla, so I should look like him. I love that. I love that. That's great. So so, okay, tell me, uh, just looking back. At all the artists you've worked with, who were the most delightful artists? Uh, uh, one, one, one of those has got to be Chris Isaac because he has a great, wonderful work ethic. He's really diligent and he's mirthful. He wants to have fun while he's working. And it, it, it actually, it's because of Chris Isaac that I started my own little uh, PR company. He's never been my own client. He was when I worked at Warner Brothers, but not thereafter. I was in uh, uh, Vancouver. Uh, sort of chaperoning an interview where uh, uh, the guy from the San Francisco Chronicle was there while Chris was making his TV show, cleverly titled The Chris Isaac Show. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. And uh, Brilliant. At, and, <laughs> to uh, the point. <laughs> I knew that my tenure at Warner Brothers was drawing to a close within the next month or two. And Chris said, you know, you've got to jump right back in because if you're not involved, they'll forget you. I said, Who's going to forget me? He says, the whole business will forget you. <laughs> and I understand that's why he's so active. He doesn't, he doesn't take a whole lot of time off if he right. can help it. Okay, well, take me through like your, you get a new Rolling Stones record, you got to work. Tell, tell our listeners what goes into that, like from start well, to finish. Uh, when you say I represent the Rolling Stones, that's a misnomer. I represent the Rolling Stones catalog. I work with ABCO, which has the catalog that from the very beginning of the band to through 1971, which if you go to a Rolling Stones concert and you write down every single song that they perform, which I've done, more than 50% are from the period that ended around 1971. So that's the meat okay. of the catalog. Um, I'm, but of course, great records came after as well. So right now I'm working on the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which is a TV special that didn't air for 28 years. Um, but it has... The, Stone, the original lineup of the Stones with Brian Jones. It has a supergroup called the Dirty Mac, which was formed for just that one performance. And it's got John Lennon, Keith Richards on bass, Mitch Mitchell on um, wow. drums from the Jimi Hendrix Experience, right. and, and a guitarist you might have heard of named Eric Clapton. Yeah. Um, and, and they did a couple of songs, and it was just for fun. 
anyway, it's a it's a home video DVD, and I'm working on uh, getting things accomplished so that when we announce it's going to be released, there'll be um, some anticipation, and presumably uh, people will be excited and want to either buy the DVD or order the video on demand or somehow right. avail themselves of it because it's a little slice of history. Take me to ZZ Denver, Top then. Very day. Billy Gibbons is doing um, a um, photo session for the cover of Guitar World magazine. Who who else should be on the cover of Guitar World? He should. Not Billy Gibbons. Nobody of but course. him. Right. <laughs> and you get and that done. That's part of your that's part of your job description. Yes. So take me on the journey. Fiftieth anniversary of uh, of uh, ZZ Top. Um, this it's really this coming year, so we're celebrating it now. And um, uh, we announced uh, a tour. So uh, Guitar World expressed uh, interest in doing something. So they said, well, we'll put Billy on the cover. I have a direct relationship with Billy. So I got him to uh, agree to do the interview, which took place yesterday. And and after the interview was complete, I said, you want to do the photo sessions? You can do it as early as tomorrow. He goes, okay, give me the address. I'll drive over there. I said, Amy can drive you. He goes, no, no, I'll get there. Just give me the address. <laughs> He's a very uh, self-reliant guy. You know, he gets out of his car and people go, holy mackerel, it's Billy Gibbons. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's a great guy to send to a premiere. You don't have to explain who he is. Everybody right. knows. Right. But if they look at him, they think it's a guy in a Billy Gibbons disguise. And yeah. it's funny with the, um, the photographer said, does he need hair and makeup? I said, where would you put it? <laughs> he's got the beard and the glasses. I mean, because he's, he really is a personal friend. I've known him since uh, the DeGueo album. Um, and we've, we've socialized together. We've been to his house. He's been to mine. I know his wife. He's like a great guy to hang out with. Mm-hmm. And we have this, this overlap of our love. I mean, he can play him and I can talk about him of, of the blues, you know, and the, but he says the three Kings of the blues. I know it's Albert, BB and Freddie, you know, but you know, he, he knows that I know that. He doesn't have to explain it. Right. So we're on the same wavelength in that regard. Of course, as far as playing it, nobody can touch him. But uh, right. we have we have that in common, and, and, you know, it's a mutual thing. We're rolling with you right now. An entire Mississippi Minute. You're in the Keep Mississippi beautiful studios. Stand by. I want to know what it finally feels like to be doing it, doing it, doing it. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. We're rolling together, you and me, right here from the Keep Mississippi Beautiful Studios. I love asking this question because I know the answer, I think, uh, in, in most cases. Uh, two things. One, have you ever worked with an artist or seen an artist become extremely successful it had a really bad work ethic. Did that happen? It does. I, I, you know what it is? It's the gr- gratuitous grousing. I guess so. I mean, the, the interviews that we've set up and the guy never showed up. And, you know, it's like, 
That's what Uh-oh. I'm talking about. It's, it's the front door. I love it. Well, we need a front door. Come I'm gonna, on. This, I'm going to answer the door. Answer the door. I want you to answer it, and I want to know what's going on, because this, this makes the show Where's magic. Keely the dog, is. Uh, she's my doorbell. Yeah. Keely, go back. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Bob. Hi, Kurt. I'm doing an interview, so I'm, you you do what you do. Okay. And enjoy Keely. Get him, Keely. Get him, Keely. Get him. Sick him. Keely. She's named after a client. The little dog. She's named after Keely Smith, who wow. was uh, Louis Prima's wife, Louis Prima and Keely Smith. Wow. I, I, I was her last publicist. Oh man! Wow, I love it. I love. Well, well Keely's doing. Is it a her? Her job. <laughs> She's doing her job. Uh, well, we have a, a house tour here in Palm Springs. There's a guy who does ho- uh, tours of modernist architecture, and we gave him the key to our house and said, "You can take people through it." And sometimes we're here when he does it. I love it. We're talking to Bob Merlis, Merlis for hire. He's not really for hire for everybody, so don't be don't be driving well, him crazy. You can't even find him. <laughs> can't hunt him down. He's got eleven people that screen. So uh, anyway, so Bob, so so name an artist. Can you name an artist that was difficult to work with? I can name more than one, but I'm not going to because oh, I'm discreet. Man. Okay, okay. It's a NDA. All right, I get it. I'll, 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 get, I'll give you a great story though. I want a great so, story. There was a, a group that um, was on Warner Brothers, and they were, um, the leader of the group is originally from Sacramento, California. So the guy at the Sacramento Bee called me and said, so-and-so from the group is very mad at the label. I said, why? He said, he says he didn't work hard enough for him. And I said, as we stand at this moment, this this guy's group has a number one record, number one on the top 100. That's the key. I said, if there was a number higher than one, we would strive to achieve that. <laughs> but you can't get a number higher than one. So I feel we've done a very good job. And, you know, grousing about a number one record is uh, ingracious. Especially when you're talking to me, whose highest record got to number two. It's a horrible feeling. <laughs> horrible feeling. So trust me, I know. <laughs> so, so who was that? Or you can't tell me. I'm not going to... Oh, I'll tell you. The guy, his name is Jay King. The group was called Club Nouveau, and they had a, a different kind of a New Jack version of uh, Lean On Me. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. So you in the you, early 90s. You've worked with so many styles, right? But it, but have you always leaned toward... I mean, you, when you're at Warner Brothers, you're, lean, you're, you're having to work everything, right, that they give you. So... Uh, whether you love it or not, you got to work it. But now you're I, yeah, in a that's place. That's true, but it, it really helps if you like it. Well, yes, yeah, what really. I'm saying. And now, you're, now you've been at a place, well, since 2001, where you take clients you love, right? Yes, I do. Uh, I'm, the artists that I have something in common with where I can see what they're trying to do and I have an appreciation for what, the, what they're doing. In some cases, that's a catalog. So we handle the Jimi Hendrix catalog, the Roy Orbison catalog, and as I noted, the the Stones catalog and some of the elements of the Sam Cook catalog. I mean, check every box there. They're all fantastic. Right, right. People who, you know, I, I, I can't believe I live in the same world as people who made that epical music. Um, but if it's somebody I, I don't know or I never met, I have to kind of sink my teeth into it and understand w- what they're doing and see if I have some level of appreciation. In your case, obviously I did because I, I, took, I took it and I took it uh, the, the project with a great deal of enthusiasm because I, I really like the idea of what you did with the Veterans of the B.B. King 
band and Elvis where you recorded and, that, right. and so on. It, it, so it kind of spoke to me. Right. Well, so wait that, until you hear what's coming because uh, okay. I've been on a roll, but that's another thing. Okay. So, uh, and I appreciate that. And it meant the world that you did because it, 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 it made me, you know, you, we look for reasons to, as artists to, to remain uh, valid uh, and, and get stamps of approval along the way. And you definitely one of the ones that mattered to me in a, in a particular era in my life, which is the latest. <laughs> so, so it, it, it validated some things that I needed to know and it, it made me feel good. And I'm, I'm glad you didn't play me a record like Amit did and go, look, when you can do this, let me know. Then I would have known I had to go back to ground one. <laughs> hey, so what am I going to play you a ZZ top album? Come no, on, no, you can't do it. No, you can't do that. That's not fair. That would be totally unfair. Hey, so Bob, you know, uh, I struck out like three or four times. Well, I struck out once and probably had a couple strikes and about three balls coming. I'm I'm usually pretty good, but either I'll get geography wrong at times because my mind's too foggy and I hadn't had enough coffee, or maybe I've had too much coffee. Either way, I have to find an even kill not to screw up factual stuff. So I struck out a little bit today. I'm not editing it out because I want my listeners to know I am human and I am Mississippi. So I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I know you got a house full now and Keeley's on the roll. So th- thanks for taking a Mississippi minute with me. I, I can't wait to work with you again in the future. And uh, well, I look forward to it as well. Fun to talk to you. Anytime. This has been what we've been with Bob Merlis, Merlis for Hire, legendary, legendary in our world of music. You guys have a blessed day later on. I'm Steve Azar, in a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, where you can take your sweet time. It's easier than ever to hear Super Talk anywhere. Now you can get Super Talk Mississippi on Amazon Alexa devices. Just go to supertalk.fm slash Alexa to find out more. For news, politics, sports, and the good things happening in Mississippi, the conversation starts here. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.